News just in. People are not getting any smarter. This is especially true of the owners of caravans. I'm Urban from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. Australia only. Website. Card. I am humbled by the comments from yesterday's video. I really am. And speechless. <laughs> Although I will attempt to talk for the next 15 minutes or something about them. <sighs> yesterday's video, all about thermodynamics and thermofluids and heat exchanging and radiators and cooling and overheating and specific heat capacity and ethylene glycol. I'll put a link uh, up there if my adult brain can remember to do so in post-production and you can watch it for yourself if you'd like but I have selected the top 10 pelican comments from yesterday and we will go through them in some detail because not only are they fascinating in their own right but they do open the door to even more ghetto engineering beer garden physics than yesterday so let us do that this report is sponsored by NordVPN. Now, I'm not a hardcore IT guy, but I've heard enough, especially recently, about data breaches, scams and hacks to know that being online can be inherently risky and costly. You don't have to be tech savvy to use NordVPN. It's a simple one-stop cybersecurity solution. One click and you are protected from hackers, malware and pop-ups across as many as six devices. NordVPN is the world's fastest VPN. I don't even notice it running in the background, frankly. And it only costs about as much as a cup of coffee to keep your data, your identity and your devices secure every month. NordVPN can also save you money because you can assign your virtual location to another country where, for example, flights and accommodation might be cheaper than they are back at home. The same goes for streaming services and you can access live sporting events and other content that may not be available where you actually live. It's a pretty small price to pay for cyber security, not to mention the potential savings also on the table. Go to nordvpn.com AEJC to get a huge discount off your plan plus four months free. Totally risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com AEJC. Link in the description. And thanks to Nord for sponsoring this episode. Let us get right into it. Here is a weapons-grade comment from a dude named Ian Moon. Mooney! Here in Australia, we would probably call him Brown Eye. Just so he can, you know, learn to fight as a kid. Anyway, Brown Eye says... <coughs> Jesus, JC, the alloy pistons start to creep. Open bracket, distort. But no closed bracket, so that's a bit freaking open-ended, isn't it, Brown Eye? Just prior to melting around 650C. You don't want the exhaust gap temperature at 650 ever. Is that so? Let's drill down into that, because that's kind of interesting, isn't it? There's a lot of hot stuff going on down there in your engine, and people get the wrong idea about it completely. Like, inside a diesel engine that's doing its thing, have a guess what the peak combustion temperature is, because I just looked it up. It happens like this, okay? You can think about 
the engine doing its suck, squeeze, bang, blow thing. So it sucks and it squeezes. And in the case of a diesel, the effective compression, because they're all turbocharged, the effective compression is about 20 to 1. So it's probably 14 or 15 to 1 mechanical compression from the piston and the rest from the turbocharger, okay? But in there, just before the fuel gets squirted in with the valves closed, 20 to 1 kind of thing. And that means the temperature is going to be five or 600 degrees C because even at, let's say, 1500 RPM, which is 25 revs per second, the squeeze phase of suck, squeeze, bang and blow is only going to take about 1 50th of a second. So the air is going from like whatever it is, slightly less than one atmosphere kind of thing, to 20 to 1 in one fiftieth of a second and it's going to get fairly hot and we want it to get fairly friggin hot because we'd like the fuel to burn when it gets injected in in a diesel because you know no spark plug so there's that it's already at five or six hundred degrees without the fuel in it just by virtue of the compression brown eye and then when the combustion event starts it reaches its peak very quickly and the peak is about 2000 degrees C when the piston starts to move down the bore obviously the volume changes and that of necessity changes the temperature downward a little bit it stabilizes at about 1500 degrees C but 2000 degrees C to 1500 degrees C that is hotter than the melting point of the piston and if it's an alloy head of the aluminium head and it's even hotter than the melting point of the cast iron cylinder sleeve and the cast iron head if the head is cast iron. So, dude, what's going on here? Why does the piston just not melt every time? And we have to think about this like uh, proper ghetto engineers, do we not? Because pistons don't routinely melt and those temperatures are routinely achieved in the combustion chamber. So I'd suggest that the temperature of a thing inside the combustion chamber is not the same as the temperature of the actual burning fluid, right? And it is a fluid, gases are fluids, look it up. So what's happening here is the temperature of anything is a function, it's a bit like your bank account, okay? The balance of your bank account is a function of duos things, right? The amount of money coming in and the amount of money you're taking out or which is being taken out on your behalf all right so the temperature of the piston for example is kind of like that it's a function of the heat load going into the piston and the heat that is escaping from the piston so if we just think about a snapshot of the piston in operation with the combustion event happening then obviously the combustion event is going to be putting heat load on the piston and the piston is one of the hottest things in the combustion chamber, but I'd suggest that the surface area of the piston that is exposed to the heat from combustion is ballpark, about a quarter of the total surface area of the piston, maybe less, okay? Because the piston's got an underside and it's got outside cylinder wall sort of thing, contact where the rings are, and then it's got an inside roughly quasi-circular face as well. I'd be very surprised if the total surface area of the piston on the crown was more than a quarter of the total surface area of the piston. So the three quarters of the piston 
surface area that is not exposed to the heat of combustion is in a colder environment than the combustion chamber. And therefore, heat will be lost through the piston to the other three quarters of the piston surface area. The underside of the piston is covered in oil and when it's really, really hot, it's rocketing down the bore at some considerable speed of, I don't know, 50 or 80, 100 kilometres an hour, whatever it is, it's moving pretty quickly. It's also covered in oil, so aluminium is one of the best thermal conductors that we've got access to. So heat will transfer rapidly from the crown of the piston to the rest of the piston. It's got convective cooling because although the crankcase is a hot place, it's relatively cool relative to the combustion chamber. We'll get heat transfer through the piston into the combustion chamber via the oil that's coating the piston. And because it's moving fast, it's got high convective cooling as well, okay? Furthermore, the combustion event, it starts shortly before top dead center, right? And it goes to shortly before bottom dead center, then the exhaust valve opens, but the hot gas is still there for most of the rest of the half of that stroke as well. So I'd be suggesting that these hot temperatures pertain for about two-thirds of one rev, which is about one-third of the total cylinder cycle time, right? Suck, squeeze, bang and blow takes two revs, so if you've got two-thirds of a rev where you've got that hot energetic combustion mass in close contact with the piston, then that is about one-third of the total cycle time of the cylinder. So the piston is not exposed to these hot temperatures for two-thirds of the time. So look at it this way. For every three seconds that the piston is in operation, for two of those seconds, it's not impacted by that heat load and therefore it is just losing heat, okay? I'd also suggest that if you want to think about this like a thermodynamicist or a thermofluids expert, then we could look at it like this. Energy has to go somewhere and it can't be in two places at once. So if heat energy is in the cylinder and it's being used to turn the crankshaft and provide mechanical work, then it cannot also be being used to heat the piston. And if it's flowing out the exhaust, it cannot also, the heat I mean, the energy, it cannot also be used to heat the piston up. And when you look at the engine energy distribution. There's a great study by Oak Ridge Laboratory in the United States about where the energy actually goes in a diesel engine. And you can only ever ballpark this. You can only ballpark it for your engine because the actual specific energy distribution varies with the operating parameters like uh, engine revs, load, throttle position, things of this nature, right? The actual energy distribution in percentage terms is all over the shop depending on whether the engine is operating very efficiently, like at its peak efficiency of about 40%, or if it's just kind of loping along and operating at its usual efficiency of about 20, 22%, something like that. So if you look at where the energy actually goes in a modern diesel internal combustion engine, the work that's being done to move the wheels ultimately, about 25% of the energy in the combustion event, latently in the fuel if you like, that's going to turn the crankshaft. So it's not heating the combustion chamber up at all. And 
friction and pumping losses, that really varies depending on whether the engine's operating in a super efficient part of its range or not. But 25 to 15% of all energy is lost to friction or pumping losses, okay? And pumping losses are like engines aren't pumps, but they do incur some losses if the piston is forced to eject some of the exhaust gas or suck some of the inlet mixture in. And it doesn't do that very often, or a large proportion of pumping is not done by engines, but a little bit of pumping to get rid of the last bits of exhaust gas happen, and a little bit of suction happen as well. The main thing that happens to get rid of exhaust gas is the exhaust valve opens, and because it's high pressure in there, the exhaust just fucks off, right? Because all of a sudden a pressure vessel's got a hole in it and the gas just escapes. And the same thing with inlet, right? The main driver of inlet is a thing called scavenging during overlap, which is when the inlet and exhaust valves are both open. You've got this energetic flow going out the exhaust and a consequence of that is suction pulling inlet in, all right? But there is some suction happening by virtue of the downward motion of the piston that's a pumping loss, and there are other frictional kinds of losses, like friction, viscous friction in bearings and things of that nature. So 2 to 15% of total energy, power, if you like, is lost just with friction and pumping losses. And then you're left with about 40 to 50% of the remaining energy, and it's a roughly 50-50 split here. Half of it goes out the exhaust, right? And the other half goes to the cooling system and is convected from the block and things of that nature, okay? So only about 20 to 25% of the total heat is absorbed into the actual metal of the engine. And when you think about it, the head, for example, has lots of water passages in it energetically to remove heat from that region so that will be at a comparatively cool temperature and the block has water passageways as well to keep the cylinders from overheating so that'll be relatively cool relative to the piston and that means most of the heat transfer will happen into the cylinder walls and into the head the piston does get hot but it doesn't get hot enough to creep or melt so that's kind of how this works it's routinely at 1500 to 2000 degrees C inside the combustion chamber and yet the aluminium piston which will melt at 660 degrees C does not melt and it does not melt because of the bank account analogy heat is coming in here from the hot combustion chamber gases but it's also coming out and going to all these other locations and that energy cannot be in two places at once if it's transferred elsewhere, it cannot be used to melt the piston, which is why the piston doesn't melt. Pro tip, this would be like you trying to melt a piston with a propane torch that was only allowed to be on for one second out of every three while the piston was being sprayed over three quarters of its surface area by oil that was doing a pretty good job cooling it and also while it was moving rapidly down the bore at 80 kilometres an hour with a whole bunch of convection really helping to cool it also. And that's why I think you'd find it'd be very difficult to melt a piston in that situation. And obviously, if you did want to melt aluminium with some sort of hydrocarbon burner, you would do it in a furnace. And the principal function of a furnace, obviously, is to insulate it from all of those cooling events so that you could get maximum heat in and very little heat out. So the bank account balance goes up. So 
Don't agree with you there, brown eye. Sorry, dude. Number two now, William Stewart. B.S. Bill Stewart. The most polite explanation that Einstein wasn't a caravan ever. Yeah, dude, I agree with you. All of this beard stroking, all these people who never paid attention in physics or science generally at school, didn't understand mathematics, they've all got the entitlement factor to just think, oh, yeah, but aluminium melts, it'll creep at 660. You don't want your EGT to be like that. Like, give me a break, okay? Einstein was not a caravanner for this reason. Caravanning is a, a particular activity that self-selects on the basis of scientific literacy mainly. And I think you'd find that Newton, Einstein, Pascal, Schrodinger, D'Alembert, Bernoulli, et al., all emphatically not caravanners. David D now. David's pretty interesting too. Let's. He starts off with let's without an apostrophe. Kind of sets the tone, David, for the rest of your message. Let's address the elephant in the room. That poor old Blake's comparison between the Triton and the Hilux is like comparing apples to oranges. On comparisons, illiterate David D, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Comparisons using two are meant to highlight similarity, right? Just saying. Comparison with, different story, highlights the differences. Compared to, not so much. He goes on and says, Triton 2.4 litre, 133 kilowatts, 430 newton meters. Hilux 2.8 liter, 150 kilowatts, 500 newton meters. Love the conclusion. It's not rocket science that the Triton will be working harder than the Hilux. In addition to remedial English classes, which I would prescribe for you, David, if I were your physician, can you hear that sound? It's the sound of Isaac Newton spinning in his fucking grave, dude. Because if you take two vehicles and the vehicles weigh the same and they're going to drive at the same speed up the same hill carrying the same chitois behind them, towing the same chitois, then guess what, dude? They're doing exactly the same work. One's not working harder than the other. It's going to require exactly the same amount of energy to get them to the top and of the hill. And if they do it in the same time, it's going to require exactly the same power production. This is what happens when you pay attention in basic physics classes at high school. It really is confronting, though, because... I'm just saying, we all get the same vote. Now, this is interesting to me too. A person whose name on the YouTube landscape is Lynn Grade Anos Smith, and I bet he or she can fight. G-R-E-Y-D, Anus, A-N-U-S, hyphen Smith. Lynn Grade Anos Smith says, I tend to keep an eye on transmission fluid temp. It is very difficult to read as written. When towing, loss of viscosity at high temps will grenade and transmission while towing. Yeah, okay. I'm not even going to comment on that. I think that 
particular comment is its own reward, Mr. or Ms. Grade Anus Smith. Dan Wallace now. Dan is a good bloke. He's a regular commenter and he has some specialist knowledge here. And I really feel for Dan because of his professional experience. Dan goes, Anytime a customer came into my work telling me their scan gauge was showing X while on their mate's car it was showing Y. Service advisors need a medal to resist giving out uppercuts daily. Dan, I feel your pain, dude, more than you know. My inbox is full of equally painful allegations from time to time. Now, that was half time. We're up to number six now. Yen Zen One says PV equals Mr. T. Capital M, little r, T. And this is the first time I've ever seen B.A. Baracus from the A-Team incorporated into what I assume is a bastardised version of Boyle's Law. PV equals NRT. Pressure and volume obviously related to temperature by virtue of the amount of gas and a thing called the universal gas constant. But PV equals Mr. T. Fool! I don't know why, but a bunch of people actually used as a single thing in their comments in that video, PV equals NRT. It's only for gases, you tools. We're talking about liquid heat exchange. Just saying. Now, Cow Sweatman. I like Cow Sweatman too. He's a regular. He's been on these feedback videos before also. I give you 13 points out of a possible 10, Mr. Sweatman. Thermodynamics, the chocolate wheel of life with the dragon of death standing behind it. One day your number will come up, but not in a good way. This is exactly right. You know, the cruelest thing about thermodynamics, especially the second law, which is a particularly bastard feature of the universe, is that available energy just gets lost in the time domain, in every system with a boundary through which energy and work may not pass, right? And the universe, as far as we know, is one of those systems. And the second law leads to this thing called the heat death of the universe, which is ultimately the whole thing just ends up being, this is billions of years in the future, just sort of a soup with no available energy. There's a pleasant thought. Obviously, well before that happens, though, the second law of thermodynamics will catch up with you and me, and basically you'll just get a second law of thermodynamics SMS one day, which will tell you that, unfortunately, the party is going on for the foreseeable future, but you're no longer invited. So cruel. That's the problem with death generally, I think. Anyway, Alex Cordron now. Alex and I are going to have a difference of opinion. I can feel it in my water. Alex says, John! Anytime a comment starts with John, I know it's going to be point of order, right? John, you keep referring to this as a thermodynamic thermofluid problem. I must rebut this. It is a heat transfer problem as it deals with non-equilibrium issues. Thermodynamics is strictly for equilibrium issues. Is it? Well, Alex, 
That's a very interesting take on this, and it has been some time since I studied thermodynamics fucking endlessly at university, but upon reflection, dude, I must repudiate and refute your rebuttal, Alex. Your position on this one is, respectfully, a bit of a turd. And not that, it's not that healthy turd of adequately hydrated, sort of, lots of dietary fibre, healthy turd. It's not that at all. Yours is the, yours is the turd of a dozen beers washed down by a hasty 2am vindaloo. And one does wake up to find that often enough, you know, um, getting through the mattress protector. Doesn't one... That's an unpleasant situation to be in now. According to facts, thermodynamics is, quote, the branch of physical science that deals with the relations between heat and other forms of energy, such as mechanical, electrical or chemical energy, and by extension of the relationships between all forms of energy. That's from Oxford Languages. They know this stuff, I'm pretty sure. Thermofluids is... Quote, the combined study of heat transfer, fluid dynamics, thermodynamics and combustion. The applications of thermofluids range from efficient engine design to heating, ventilation and air conditioning, brackets, HVAC. That's according to the University of British Columbia. They are extremely fucking polite from what I've heard. Now, there's no mention in any definition of which I am aware, and I throw the floor open to you, dude, to go and find it, that limits thermofluids or thermodynamics to only systems in equilibrium. So, if you can find that reference, lay it on me, dude. Otherwise, best attend to the mattress. It's not getting any better. Dennis! Dennis now. If I were your Prime Minister, which I'm not sure, but I think it'd be a net upgrade. If I were your Prime Minister, I would pass a bill immediately that changed the pronunciation of everyone whose name was Dennis to Dennis, rhymes with. And obviously, they just, everyone named Dennis would be in a better position to defend themselves from bullies. It would only take a couple of years. Imagine the Emotional resilience that would flow from that, see? Big thinker. Dennis says, G'day, John. Your comment regarding bull bars, my understanding, is that modern bull bars have to meet ADR standards before they can be sold, let alone fitted to a car. If my understanding is correct and I'm not an engineer's asshole, and not only that, you're not all that good with the keyboard either. Engineer's asshole needs an apostrophe before the S. Just say. That means the bull bar must be compliant with all rules regarding egg bag, I think he means airbag, and crumple zones. Would it be fair to say that you saying bull bars endanger people's lives, missing apostrophe alert, is a little exaggerated if people as highly educated as you have said that they are safe to fit to your car? Pedestrian's a different case, obviously. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Dennis. 
bull bars don't have to fit ADR standards because they're not fitted to most vehicles for first registration. They tend to be more of an aftermarket or accessory thing. Therefore, ADRs don't, don't really come into it. And furthermore, although there are standards for the construction of bull bars, they tend to relate to forward protrusion and fitting within the envelope of the uh, shape of the car and things of that nature. And, and also aggressive features like fishing rod holders and stuff like that, okay? So there are rules for bull bars, but I'm not aware of any that have to do with ADRs. And furthermore, I don't think ADRs relate in any way to airbags or crumple zones. What there are are some very basic ADR crash tests. And crash tests don't mandate crumple zones or airbags. They mandate a certain performance of loads on the dummy during crashes. And it's up to the manufacturer how they comply with those uh, standards. You don't have to have crumple zones. You don't have to have airbags. You have to comply with the structural performance of the dummy, right? Because the dummy is just the person. It's a simulation of a person. You need to protect them. That's what these tests are about. So there is no requirement in ADRs, of which I'm aware, for either crumple zones or airbags. It's just that that's the way of getting the crash performance that we need, okay? So... Would it be fair to say that you saying bull bars endanger people's lives is a little exaggerated? No, it wouldn't, because they can't be any, any other way. Pedestrians, they're really bad for pedestrians, but if you choose to put a bull bar on your car, it will restrict the airflow through the radiator, which is going to be uh, something to consider if you're towing something heavy through the outback in summer. And... If you have a serious life-threatening crash, it is highly likely that the existence of a bull bar as part of the overall structure is going to change the way the crash sensor interprets the crash, and this will be a net disadvantage to the people in that vehicle if you want to survive or have a good outcome following the crash. Lucky last, number 10, Stuart Fleck. I don't know if that's even the correct spelling of the dude's surname. I guess we'll never know. Anyway, Stewie says, Sorry, John, not buying your airbag theory. Too many variables. Dog's dick. That's how you know someone really means it. They end the sentence in a dog's dick. For example, what happens if you hit a tree versus another car? Trees don't have crumple zones. It doesn't matter what you hit, dude, because the crash sensor in your car only cares about the severity of the impact to the car. If you hit a bunch of really, really small trees, you might not get an airbag deployment at all. But if you hit a dirty big 200-year-old river red gum at a sufficient speed, pretty much guaranteed you will. And they don't have crumple zones at all. That's quite true. If you hit a truck, if you hit a small car, right? The only thing the crash sensor looks for is the severity of the impact inside the car. Okay, what we're talking about here is connecting something at the very front of the car to a structural part of the car, which effectively checkmates a bunch of crumply components betwixt, and that can make the airbag deploy prematurely, like at the wrong time, relative to delivering maximum survivable intervention for you. That's what's at risk here, okay? Stewie goes on. 
The tracking system in the front seats don't allow for large and small people variabilities. A person sits very close to the wheel to reach the pedals. Dobstick. There's hardly any punctuation here. I suspect we're getting multiple sentences. Very hard to read, Stewie. Are not airbags controlled by variations through the ABS system? The ABS system might as well be on the moon as far as the fucking airbag system is concerned, Stewie. And an accelerometer built into the computer. Obviously, there's a crash sensor, and it's like a go-no-go proposition. When it hears a crash go over the threshold for deployment, it just says, go, okay? Is there evidence of airbags going off prematurely in an accident with a ball bar? Well, I'd suggest that you don't need evidence. You just need to understand basic physics to know that that's what's likely to happen. Here's what ANCAP has to say about bull bars. Quote, ANCAP does not test vehicles with bull bars fitted. The fitting of incompatible bull bars can have an adverse effect on the crash performance brackets occupant protection provided by a vehicle as well as interfere with the safe and effective operation of collision avoidance systems and sensors. Unquote. Now, the fact is that no bull bar manufacturer of which I am aware has demonstrated bull bar compatibility with the current ANCAP test protocols, which were established in 2018, which was five years ago. Now, Stewie did follow up in the same thread with a comment, and I found that just as emotionally uplifting as the first comment he made. So we might as well treat this as a bit of a denouement for the video. Working in the panel industry, obviously I'm quoting Stewie here, I've seen hundreds of four-wheel drives and even conventional cars with bull bars. Apostrophe S. That's cryptic. That's the kindest I can be with that. And I've never seen an airbag fail or go off at the wrong time to hurt the occupant. Dog stick. Must mean it. And as I address the computer sensor, the ABS system and the accelerator, capital E, accelerator. Couple of things there, Stewie. I'd suggest A, the kinds of crashes that you really need the airbag to function really, really well for don't end up with the car at a panel shop. They end up with the car at the wreckers because the car's going to be a write off, dude. There's going to be massive structural damage to absorb the energy and allow the people to walk away. So if you've seen an airbag deployed car come into your panel shop, that collision's been comparatively minor in the scheme of things, so there's that. And the other point I'd make is that I don't know how motivated I am to take crash performance applied physics advice from somebody who appears to me to be unable to spell accelerator. <laughs>